Blog Talk Radio. We sit in the house and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller and all we say is please at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belt and radio and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not willing to do that. enough to have uh, Dr. David Gordon with us. In this episode, we're uh, blessed again with Dr. Stephen Hicks. And uh, I have to say that, uh, Dr. Hicks, you've been a big influence on me. Um, I've Mm. paid attention to your work, and I'm just absolutely (laughs) tickled to have you on here with us this afternoon. Um, Thanks for coming on. Well, I appreciate the invitation, especially to talk about Nietzsche. She'll be fun. Yeah, I think so as well. And I know that you also you, you did a, a lecture, and it was actually I, I found it on Netflix initially in a DVD format, oh, and yes. I purchased it. Yeah, yeah, it was really crazy. I found it, I just started watching it, and I was just enthralled. I I've probably watched that lecture about uh, I bet at least ten times. Um, yes. I, I I purchased uh, the more, DVD. more than I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I own the book. Um, and so I, you know, it's a, it's amazing. I think it just covers a lot of ground. Of course, you also did uh, explaining postmodernism, mm-hmm. which is an interesting topic in and of itself. And I know that you've uh, written a lot of other things. Maybe you can tell us about a little bit more about some of that stuff and some of the things you're working on right now. All right. Well, I also have, uh, aside from the interest in intellectual history and how uh, abstract philosophy plays out in politics and history. Uh, strong interest in business and economic ethics issues, uh, particularly since we live in a very dynamic business uh, technology-oriented culture in which everything is uh, changing and uh, overall progressive. What makes that possible? And then uh, also some strong interest in philosophy of education. And uh, one of my current projects is uh, co-authoring with a younger uh, Canadian philosopher of education, Andrew Colgan, what uh, will be a, a textbook in, in philosophy of education, going over some of the major influential philosophies and how they uh, have uh, influenced educational practice in uh, in very different ways. Well, that's that's all. I mean, you're you're a busy guy. Mm. Um, <laughs> but uh, we also have uh, my my co-host David Germans with us. He's every episode. So, uh, David, how are you doing? Good. Good. All right. Fantastic. So, so I guess, uh, you know, your, our major topic is, is Nietzsche. Um, and he's a definitely not a boring figure is so much there to cover. Yes, absolutely. Well, he did describe himself as dynamite and, uh, yeah. that's, uh, an apt description. <laughs> so what do you say to people who, when you, I, I, because there are times when I have brought up uh, Nietzsche and, and people, one of their first reactions seems to be, oh yeah, that guy's crazy. Mm. 
So it's my reaction to that. Yeah. What, what do you What do you think about that? Well, uh, I think uh, Nietzsche is shocking to uh, most people whose uh, education has been very conventional. And uh, what Nietzsche does is what all great philosophers do, is they identify what are the fundamental issues, the fundamental assumptions that any of us need to grapple with if we are going to be thoughtful human beings. And uh, in Nietzsche's case, he... uh, uh, is not afraid to uh, puncture balloons and attack idols, uh, often fi- false idols as he sees them. Uh, there's, there's no uh, you know, kind of pulling punches and, and uh, polite academic style when we get to Nietzsche. So uh, in many cases, you know, when we're, we're young people and we start to read deeply and think deeply about issues, we go through a, a transformative stage when we realize how complicated the issues are, uh, and how much we had taken for granted. Uh, in Nietzsche's case, uh, it's often a, a double whammy because it's not only that, but Nietzsche arguing that in, in, in many or most cases, uh, the framework that most of us were raised in is not only false, but destructively false and should be abandoned and replaced by, by something else. So. He's uh, very exciting, and uh, for people who are not willing to uh, go down that intellectual road, yeah, he would seem uh, he would seem crazy because he's asking people to step outside not only their their comfort zone, but in many cases their entire intellectual and emotional framework. Okay, so so when you think about, I mean, I mean, I know that that. Um, I guess he died from syphilis. Is that correct? Eventually, and that that does, as time goes by, sort of eat away at the brain, doesn't it? Yeah, that's uh, I think one of the leading hypotheses. Yeah, because he he did lose it for the last ten years of his biological life. He died biologically in 1900, but he was essentially out of it for the the last uh, uh, decade, right, of his life. So all of his works, uh, major works, were published in the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, uh, are, are the ones that we that we go on, and, and they're all brilliant and provocative and, and worth reading. So and so I and I and I would think I mean personally I I almost feel that when someone when you're talking about Nietzsche and we talk about some of his more provocative statements and uh, that it's not fair when when people bring that up because I, I feel like that a lot of the work that he did was prior to that to the onset of, of most of that or any of that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, you know, even if it were the case that uh, you know what he wrote was was a product of, uh, you know, speaking hypothetically here, you know, drugs or alcohol or or random, uh, just putting words on a page. You know, once it's published and out there, you you don't attack the person anymore or or the source from which they came. That that might be a biographical interest. But you have to evaluate the analysis and evaluate the arguments on their own terms. So, yeah, people who are going to point to anyone's psychological troubles uh, are really avoiding the issues. And uh, I think it's a limitation on them, not a limitation on Nietzsche. Uh, That's very well said. Um, Another thing about him that I I always thought, I mean, I have my own, I have some perceptions. Of course, I, I know that they may not be correct. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why I'm glad you're on here is to, is to straighten things out and, and we can ask questions and, and you can correct us where, where it needs to be. But uh, one of the, he, he had sort of a Hellenistic view of, of some things like maybe morality and ethics. Did he not? Or, I mean, is that a misconception on my part? Well, he was a great admirer of uh, Hellenistic and uh, uh, Roman and even before uh, Hellenism, the uh, uh, you know, the original Greek authors as well. So his original uh, degree work was in philology, classical philology, and that uh, meant mastering the ancient languages and the etymology, and of course all of the history, philosophy, literature, and culture that uh, that goes with that. So we would call him uh, now a, a classicist, and he was uh, brilliant and original right in in those areas. Uh, and I think it's also fair to say that he, uh, you, know, you know, in, in many ways was a, a pre-Christian philosopher. And one of the things that he argues 
is that in the modern world, uh, the last four to five hundred years ago, essentially since the Renaissance, we try, uh, many of us, uh, to combine our Greco-Roman heritage with our Judeo-Christian heritage. Uh, and that uh, uneasy synthesis is, uh, is part of the dynam- dynamism of Western intellectual and cultural life. But uh, from Nietzsche's perspective, it's, uh, it's, it's largely to the detriment of, of, of our advancing that we, we let the Judeo-Christian elements have the prominence right, that, they, that they do. So in his heart of hearts, he's much more sympathetic to the, uh, the classical Greeks and Romans, and that would include their, their, uh, their ethics. Okay. Uh, David, um, did you have any questions that you would like to ask Dr. Hicks? Um, how would you uh, uh, define uh, or explain um, Nietzsche's idea of slave morality? Mm. Well, one of the interesting things about Nietzsche is uh, he's uh, not a, a philosopher in in one sense, that he thinks we have this capacity for rational thought, that we can objectively think about facts and organize the data into premises and arguments and come up with theories that we can objectively assess. Instead, what he uh, very consistently does is reduces philosophy to psychology, that uh, individuals have psychological dispositions, they have certain passions, instincts, a biological set, uh, and that what we call our rational conscious thinking really amounts to a rationalization of or an exploration of psychological forces that are already there in us to begin with. So philosophy for him is a, 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 a way of uh, you know, one way of putting it, I think, would be that philosophy is a kind of autobiography, that uh, it tells you more about the individual who's expressing those ideas than it does anything about the world that uh, the philosophy claims to be about. And then uh, another element here is that uh, for Nietzsche, you know, evolutionary ideas were in the air in the middle part of the 19th century when he was a young man growing up. And, uh, you know, to put it crudely, evolutionary theory divides the world into predator species and prey species. And each of those has a different mode of living. The prey species typically are herd animals. They, they like safety and to, uh, to, to travel in numbers. They're not very adventuresome. They're kind of scared of uh, the predators, of course. And then the predator species tend to be more loners, adventurers, you know, like to uh, to fight and be aggressive and uh, hunt and uh, warlike games and so on. Uh, and uh, so that divide between predator and prey types of being, Nietzsche think also runs through the human species. So some of us are by nature more sedentary, passive. We uh, we're we're kind of scared of the world out there, so we're we're rather timid. We want things to be safe, and others, by contrast, of us are very adventuresome and energetic, uh, uh, and we're not afraid of conflict. You know, life is not fair. Deal with it, and we're fine dealing with it, and we, we're willing to stake our, our lives in some case on, uh, on, on going out and having conflicts and, and great adventures. Uh, so slave morality is Nietzsche's term for... Uh, what you get when you rationally try to put into words and conceptualize the psychology of prey, or sorry, yeah, prey type or herd type animals. So human beings, right, who think there's safety in numbers, right, right, and that's that's how they feel about the world, will uh, be anti-individualistic, right? They will say, look, don't stick your neck out, don't try to be different from everybody else. Uh, their safety in numbers stick with your group. Uh, they will also say, uh, you know, that since they have to wait, that they're not very adventuresome. Uh, you know, to be patient. Uh, you know, don't expect the world to come to you too quickly and get what you want. Uh, don't be too aggressive. Uh, uh, then when bad things happen to them and you're a victim of various forces, well, 
just endure, right? Uh, endure your life. Life is not about you know, happiness and adventure, and don't expect too much out of it. So the morality uh, that you would get from people who have to live that way uh, is what Nietzsche calls slave morality. So in a in a shorthand, if you think about the way a stereotypical slave has to live. Right? The slave is not really allowed to dream. It's pointless to have dreams, so don't have dreams. The slave has to wait around, uh, isn't allowed to have his or her own projects and goals, as you just wait until someone in authority tells the slave what to do. The slave uh, you know, cannot react angrily uh, if the master strikes the slave. Uh, the slave has to uh, practice swallowing his or her pride, being humble, not drawing attention to himself, right, and so on. So if you think of what it's like actually to live as a slave, uh, uh, and you then try to come up with a code of values or a code of virtues that expresses what it's like to be a slave, that's what Nietzsche means by slave morality. And he contrasts that to what he calls master morality. Of course, master moralities are, the, are, are, are for those who have the power and the freedom to do what they want in their life. They, uh, they can be assertive. They can be aggressive. They don't have to worry about uh, damaging other people who are their inferiors because those uh, people who are their inferiors aren't in a position to do anything in return. So they can uh, you know, live their lives freely, indulge their whims, whatever their passions are, go for it. Uh, and uh, typically they have the sense that even if they screw up, you know, they can always uh, recoup their losses, try another adventure, and life is going to be one grand uh, power adventure of, of seeking one's own value. So if you put yourself into that mindset and then formulate consciously and abstractly a set of principles about what that lifestyle is all about, that's what he would call master morality. So that's a, a quick crude thumbnail sketch of the two. Well, uh, Dr. Hicks, when it's kind of a lot of times when Nietzsche is talking about these these individuals, a lot of times it feels like that he's referring to people like Siegfried, you know, the the ancient hero, or or you know these large some some of the more larger than life sort of individuals that you know these these huge like Socrates people that take on society in a lot of ways, sort of their own reality. They you know is that it's, do you ever feel that when you when you read some of Nietzsche and some of his work? Oh, absolutely. And he is you know, quite explicit about some of the literary and historical exemplars he has in mind. So someone like Alexander the Great, right? So that would be from his perspective, you know, he's a super predator. You know, he has a, a world domination ambition and he goes for it and he's largely successful right, at uh, at doing so. Life of adventure, conquering, taking what you want, audacity, not worrying about the little people. Uh, so Alexander the Great had it. Julius Caesar, right, had it. Napoleon had it. Uh, uh, Wagner, Richard Wagner, uh, before he uh, turned more Christian in Nietzsche's view, you know, partway through his life, he also had it. Uh, and you could see it in uh, some of the great artists, and some of the great composers, and so forth. Yes. Yeah, so. So do you think um, do you think when you when you read some of this because and and you have I mean your your lecture Nietzsche and the Nazis I mean it's like why well, it's two well over two two and a half hours um, something like that or yes. longer yeah so so you go into quite a bit of this in that lecture I mean do you do you think when when you when we're talking about this particular topic that some of this played into some of the ideas that the National Socialists and, and some of those groups around that time. Uh, had in their as far as their world view goes. Well, yes, absolutely. This is uh, you know a topic of great interest, and we do have to be careful here, partly because there's uh, 33 years from the death of Nietzsche in 1900 to uh, 1933 when the Nazis came to power officially. So there is a generation gap right in place. And uh, there's also the issue that Nietzsche is writing in often abstract-level philosophy, and he's not very programmatic when it comes to political practice. 
And uh, if we're going to connect them to, or him rather, to uh, some political activists and, 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 and practicing politicians, we do have to be very careful. Now, uh, the shorthand version of my thesis about this topic is that there are lots of ways in which Nietzsche would have hated the Nazis and in which the Nazis uh, definitely disagreed with, with Nietzsche. So uh, there are many people uh, uh, who want to argue that there's no connection at all between Nietzsche and the Nazis, and they do have some arguments that are solid that they can make about proper distancing of Nietzsche and the Nazis. But at the same time, the, uh, the Nazis were not idiots. They had a lot of high-powered intellectuals who prepared the groundwork for their political program. Several of the, uh, the Nazi uh, po uh, political activists and politicians themselves were very well-educated men, and in many cases, women. They knew what they were talking about, and when they cite Kant, they cite Fichte, Hegel, Marx, in some cases even, and Nietzsche, they, uh, they, they're doing so accurately and with, uh, with good knowledge. Uh, half the time in our generation, I wish our politicians were as uh, well philosophically educated as, as many of the Nazi intellectuals were. And so on my view, uh, there are lots of very positive, uh, not in the evaluative sense, but positive correlations between what Nietzsche said as a matter of philosophical principle and what the Nazis believed and put into practice as a matter of political principle. Uh, uh, one of the, I think, the very important things is that Nietzsche uh, was not alone, but he was part of a broader intellectual culture in Central Europe, uh, and then particularly in Germany, which was perhaps the leading intellectual nation of the world, that was uh, you know, anti-democratic, anti-free market, anti-liberal in the, in, the, in the true meaning of liberal in a very deep way. There's a strong centralizing authoritarian conflict worshipping uh, uh, embracing line of, of political thought that runs from uh, Fichte through Hegel through Marx, Nietzsche and dozens of other important thinkers on through Carl Schmitt and Martin Heidegger in the early part of the 20th century uh, and so that more collectivized authoritarian and outright militaristic right, philosophy uh, that National socialism is one prominent variation of you can find uh, uh, all of those ingredients articulated very well by leading German philosophers, and Nietzsche is prominent in that mix. Well, I know that uh, now I've heard uh, some of the arguments that his sister may have made some modifications to his work at some point. Yeah, um, let me you, uh, just mention that, uh, yeah, yeah, just on that issue, that's, that's largely a canard or, or largely, a, largely a false view. And I'm, I'm going to give you a, a, a title and a, and a professor. One of my colleagues in philosophy, uh, Professor Kevin Hill, he's a philosophy professor at Portland State University in Oregon, uh, recently published a new translation of The Will to Power. And this is the work that's centrally in question here with respect to Nietzsche's sister. Uh, and Professor Hill has a very long introduction that, that he writes, it's very well done, where he goes through right, the original manuscript that is in Nietzsche's hands, and then the, uh, the various editions right, of uh, Will to Power as they were published over, over the years. And what he finds is uh, that the, the, the claims about uh, Nietzsche's sisters um, uh, changing things right and so forth are almost always false. Right. One, of the, one of the important things here is that after World War II, when Nazism was in such disrepute, there was a great effort to distance Nietzsche as much as possible from National Socialism. And so the fact that Nietzsche's sister uh, had been Nietzsche's literary executor and had published the first volume or the first edition of Will to Power uh, after Nietzsche had lost it psychologically uh, it was a useful way of, uh, of saying, well, what Nietzsche seems to be saying in the will to power uh, that supports the Nazis, that's not really Nietzsche, that's Nietzsche's sister, and so we can just uh, ignore all of that stuff. But uh, uh, basically everything that, uh, that uh, came out in all of the editions of the will to power were words that Nietzsche actually wrote. There's nothing that the sister wrote. Uh, there were some things that she decided not to include, 
Uh, and in her introduction to the will to power, of course, she was spinning things right in certain ways, but you don't have to read the, uh, the introduction. It's also important to point out that aside from the will to power, uh, the Nazis and the various others uh, were drawing on not only right, that work, but all of the dozen or so major works that Nietzsche published in his lifetime. All of those words were Nietzsche's. Uh, and uh, he authorized them for, for publication. So, uh, uh, and, and all of those works are, are of a piece with what he's publishing, or sorry, what came out in, uh, in The Will to Power. So uh, my view is uh, that you know, the whole uh, Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche connection, it's a canard. Uh, uh, we can take Nietzsche as writing what came out in The Will to Power, that's Nietzsche, and uh, we can hold him responsible for it. Now, it is true that he didn't publish it in his lifetime, so you have to take it uh, as having slightly less authoritative status uh, compared to the works that he did authorize. But uh, what is the will to power was uh, you know, words that Nietzsche wrote, and he was preparing it for publication, so it's, uh, it's near canon- canonical, in my view. Okay, so so I guess the... The, the big thing is, and I and I thank you for that um, for clearing that up. Uh, you, you know, just the name of that book reminds me that how how much influence uh, Schopenhauer uh, had as far as Nietzsche goes, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I know that there, I, I I know that Schopenhauer disliked Hegel very much. Um, yes. And and I and I I kind of had the feeling that that Nietzsche sort of wasn't crazy about Hegel either, but in some ways I almost feel like that he was. Influenced by Hegel in the sense because he didn't like him. I don't. I don't know. But uh, I guess uh, that it just seems sort of like an interesting relationship there between Schopenhauer and, and Nietzsche, and, and that that whole time frame where Hegel was around and some of his followers. Were. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, well, Nietzsche was a brilliant guy, and one measure of his brilliance is that we can see him as uh, in, in relation to the other greats in German philosophy. So. Uh, I think in large respect, Nietzsche is drawing epistemologically from Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant. Uh, and then in the generation right after Kant, Schopenhauer and uh, Hegel are two of the giants. And in many ways, they are opposed to each other. Uh, you know, in his early intellectual career, Nietzsche, I think it is fair to say he was essentially a disciple Right, of Schopenhauer's, those, those themes of uh, irrational wis- uh, irrationalism, that the world runs on, on will and assertiveness uh, without any particular direction, a strong element of, of, of fatalism, that life is, is not about happiness, but rather about suffering and ultimate uh, you know, awareness that one will, be, uh, will sink into nothingness and uh, kind of the horror of existence upon the realization of all of that. So all of those pessimistic and nihilistic themes that one finds in Schopenhauer, uh, those did make a huge impression on the the early Nietzsche. Now, one thing, though, that's important, though, is that Nietzsche uh, eventually rejects Schopenhauer in some fundamental ways. Uh, You know, that Schopenhauer's pessimism leads him to want to not exist, Right, so it's kind of a will to, to non-existence, whereas for Nietzsche, there's a psychological strength in being able to look into the abyss, look into, uh, uh, into the, the irrational chaos and conflict and death and suffering right, of the world, and nonetheless rise above that and say, yes, that is the way the world is, that is what life is all about, but I accept it, in fact, I, I embrace it, and I, I, I assert my own... Uh, existence right into the world to to make of it what I what I can, so that that will to uh, to power to assertiveness rather than uh, that we find in Nietzsche, is is of a piece with Schopenhauer uh, in terms of the metaphysics, but not in terms of the value and uh, or the psychological reaction to it or the value reaction to it. Right? Embrace the uh, the ultimate irrationality of the world. Uh, rather than uh, than rejecting it in in horror and letting it uh, defeat you. Now, Hegel right was uh, in many ways an, an opposite of Schopenhauer, and you're right to point out that Schopenhauer hated uh, Hegel. 
Um, he had, a, <laughs> interestingly, a kind of self, self-defeatist attitude here. They both lectured at the same university, and uh, what Schopenhauer apparently would do intentionally was schedule his own lectures at the same time that he knew Hegel would be lecturing, <laughs> even though at that point Hegel uh, had a much larger following, and uh, Schopenhauer kind of knew he was setting himself up for failure uh, that he would then draw very few students to his lectures and that most people would go to Hegel's lectures, who was um, much more of a star at that time. But one thing that we find in, uh, in Hegel uh, that uh, Schopenhauer hates is, in part, Hegel is trying to systematize the world to say, yes, there might be surface conflict and chaos in, in how the world seems to be, go, but that there is a kind of underlying logic and that all of that logic is pointing reality in a certain direction so that if we understand where the world is, where it came from, and what kind of laws are governing it, we can predict the ultimate outcome. So there's a, there's a teleology right, to history or direction uh, toward which history is necessarily going to go. And uh, uh, Schopenhauer, of course, rejected all of that, arguing that reality is ultimately chaotic and nonsensical, and there is no no uh, no uh, no, uh, no causality or, or structuring, and then certainly no direction to history. And so there is a kind of Hegelian theme that Nietzsche draws into his own work. So yes, the world does run on will. But that will is directional. Right? Power is trying to go in a certain direction. It's trying to organize itself. It has an agenda, and uh, it's trying to then assert its agenda against all of the other agendas out there to, to augment its own, uh, its own power and thereby uh, make its own agenda realized. So in some ways, uh, Nietzsche is drawing from Kant, Schopenhauer, and, and Hegel and putting together his own synthesis. Okay, and, and that's thank you for that as well. I, I, I know that um, one of the things I guess that I would like to, like to make a point of maybe I thought was interesting, and then I want to let David ask a question was just that uh, initially early on through much of the 19th century, you know Nietzsche was I think viewed more probably as a romantic, even if it was sort of a dark romance, <laughs> but at least that's sure. from my perspective, and then. Uh, he was reinterpreted in the first part of the 20th century to be in an existential sense um, and sort of pulled into that school of thought, and, and which I thought was pretty interesting. I mean, he was way ahead of his time. Sure. Yeah, one of the fascinating things about Nietzsche is how wide-ranging his influence right, has been. So, yeah, it, it certainly is right that Nietzsche is part of a philosophically romantic tradition, you know, when he's urging people to, uh, you know, to live dangerously, to seek adventure, to uh, to be like a, uh, to make yourself into uh, an, an archer's bow, and to draw the the uh, the string of tension tighter and tighter, so that when the the bow is released, right, you shoot your arrow right as far and as high as it possibly can be, uh, to, uh, to uh, you know to, to urge people to uh, seek high mountains. And to, to follow their own path, all of that romantic rhetoric, right, that is, uh, is profoundly inspiring, right, to, to, to young people who sense they have their whole lives ahead of them, it certainly puts them in, in that tradition. But at the same time, uh, the existentialists uh, are, are, are also profoundly, right, influenced by Nietzsche. And one of the things that is a characteristic of existentialism is uh, certainly an anti-romantic right, right, view of the world. You know, hell is other people, uh, nausea. Uh, when we read in Camus, right, uh, you know, people are doing absurd things and uh, trying uh, to, to escape and find some modest sense of, of meaning in their lives. But you don't have any of uh, the high romanticism right, that you, had, you have in Nietzsche. Instead, you have a sense that we're all aware of our finitude, right, our morality, the pettiness that's possible, right, to all of us, right, we're aware of our, uh, our being surrounded by most people who have sold out and are, 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 are contemptibly happy with, you know, having their, 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 their little nine to five jobs and, uh, you know, griping about their neighbors and, and so forth, you know, they, uh, 
that, that life from the existentialist perspective, right, socially, right, seems right, petty and small and rather pointless. And then when we try to think more broadly and philosophically, we're aware that, uh, you know, it's, it's hard for us to believe in the illusions of religion anymore. So God is dead and we just feel kind of flat and uh, we're all going to die. And so what's the point of anything? Now, many of the existentialists will say that we need to make an effort to, to get past of all of that and find some genuine value making right in the world. But certainly that, uh, that, that, that kind of easy and natural romanticism and exaltation that you find in, in Nietzsche, you don't find in, in the existentialists. Instead, what you do find is the, the darker Nietzsche, the Nietzsche that's looking into the abyss and not seeing anything solid, foundational, uh, anything that can be serve as a as a real basic guide for some sort of genuine value pursuit. So um, uh, it is striking, right? The, that that those two currents you can find both of them in Nietzsche, and of course you can find you can find others uh, as well. Uh, some of the early uh, Zionist thinkers, uh, Jewish, right? Though they were, and despite the fact that Nietzsche had some very tough things to say about the Jews. Right. They found, nonetheless, uh, uh, Nietzsche inspiring right, for their particular ideology as well. Uh, Ayn Rand, uh, uh, in, 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 in a literary way, not philosophically at all, perhaps on some few themes early in her life, uh, also drew kind of a literary inspiration and stylistic right, from, from, from Nietzsche. Many of the postmodernists, especially Foucault, right, with their own philosophical take and literary take as well, inspiration from uh, from from Rousseau. So one of the great striking things is pretty much everywhere you look in major 20th century intellectual and cultural life, you can find some influence of uh, of Nietzsche. It's kind of funny. Uh, um, the, the saying is, um, uh, or what was it? Nietzsche said that the I can't remember it was history of the world. There will be the, the the world prior to Nietzsche, then there'll be they'll, they'll say there'll be the world after Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, so in some ways, in some ways, at least for them, the philosophical sense, uh, I, I think they, there might be something to that, although it seems like a profoundly narcissistic statement when you first hear it. But then when you actually start to look into how much influence he's had uh, right. since, since all of his work, uh, maybe there's something to it. Well, absolutely, there is something to it, and you know, part of Nietzsche's uh, directness and, and frankness, right, is uh, he is a genius. He knows that he's a genius, and he knows that he is identifying, in many cases, accurately what is going on in the world in the 19th century. He is uh, identifying what uh, is going to come out of Kantianism, what's going to come out of Hegelianism, quite accurately. So. Uh, you know, and partly it might be good marketing, uh, but if you know you have a good product, why not say that you have a good product and instead of hiding behind false modesty? And certainly intellectual history in the 20th century right, has borne that out. Virtually every major intellectual has to take stock of Nietzsche, and uh, a lot of 20th century intellectual life is, is thinkers uh, grappling with. Uh, the world that Nietzsche left for them intellectually, because quite rightly he did say, here are the issues, here's what we need to think about, this is our predicament, this is where the current trends are going to take us, and uh, in many cases he was largely right. So, like it or so not. David, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. He definitely is no, no holding back. So, so David, do you have any, uh, you have some more questions for, for Dr. Hicks? Um, what do you think um, um, Nietzsche's uh, take on Ayn Rand and her philosophy would be? If... Yeah, that's a that's a great question because um, I have some very strong interest in in Rand's philosophy and literature as well. Um, the thing I, I think it's most important to, to point out is uh, Rand's 1943 work, The Fountainhead in which she has explicitly a Nietzschean character as one of her five major characters. Uh, Gail Wynand is uh, Rand's literary interpretation of what Nietzscheanism right, means in practice. He's a man who seeks a certain kind of power, and he's quite ruthless and successful right, in, in doing so. 
building up a newspaper uh, empire by largely uh, Nietzschean methods uh, in order to amass what he takes to be the most important kind of power, wealth, which he can then use to insulate himself from the masses whom he mostly despises and then create a private individual world in which he finds genuine meaning and value, the women he pursues, uh, uh, and his building up his art collection. And uh, Gail Wynand is one of the major characters uh, against which her hero, Howard Rourke, is positioned. So Howard Rourke is the anti-Nietzschean hero uh, up against the Nietzschean hero, Gail Wynand. So those uh, of your listeners who've read The Fountainhead will recognize the uh, kind of the Rand versus Nietzsche theme that's going on there. And I would uh, recommend to anybody who has not read The Fountainhead, it's a brilliant work of literature. It's the work that made Rand famous and put her on the intellectual on the intellectual map. And uh, in that philosophical novel, uh, which is, I think, also a literary masterpiece, you find dueling philosophies. So there's a kind of Kantian Marxist philosopher uh, character represented in Ellsworth Tui. There's a 20th century take on Stoicism represented by, by, uh, by uh, Dominique Francon. And then there's Rand's own uh, a great hero, Howard Rourke, who's a, a, a creative genius, uh, uh, but uh, kind of a new type of hero that's you know, neither Marxist nor Kantian, right, nor Nietzschean. So uh, Rand, I think, admired Nietzsche, uh, saw him as a, as a genius. And uh, my understanding is that initially she was going to include a quotation from Nietzsche at the beginning of the Fountainhead uh, as a kind of uh, point of honor right toward him. But uh, before the book went to publication, she withdrew it, realizing that uh, you know, she was not a Nietzschean, that her book was anti-Nietzschean, so it wouldn't be appropriate to uh, to have a quotation from from Nietzsche there. Now, as for what Rand would, uh, sorry, what, if you go the other way, what Nietzsche would have thought about Rand? Well, I think uh, she, uh, you know, he would have recognized her as a as a genius, right? As as one of his intellectual and spiritual colleagues, however much they disagree with uh, with each other. I think she would he would have said that uh, you know her idea that uh, with entrepreneurial creation and individualism and some sort of uh, broadly liberal philosophy in which we leave people free to, uh, to, to pursue their own lives and that with, with good education and, and encouragement, basically anybody can put together a meaningful, significant, and fruitful life. I think Nietzsche would have dismissed that as ultimately uh, dismissing is, is too, uh, too, too, too flip, but he would have rejected it as, uh, as ultimately naive and, and unrealistic. He had a much darker view of, uh, of, of human nature, particularly as it's realized in most people. He thought most people were contemptible, weaklings, uh, liable to give up on their dreams much too easily. Rand was much more optimistic about the average person's potential for, uh, if not greatness, uh, something close to uh, significance and greatness in their lives. Uh- it seems ironic when you were describing, uh, when you were saying uh, about Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche's views of, of individuals and people or just now, and describing it. In some regards, in some cases, I've, I've read some things or seen some, some instances where it seems that Rand will attack other philosophers or attack people. And, and sometimes it almost sounds like that. It almost sounds like how you would have uh, said that Nietzsche might have described her. And, <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. In terms yeah. of style and the uh, <clears throat> what's like, what, I'm not sure what the right word for this is, but it, there's a there's a rhetorical style, right, in which right, one sees words not only as as tools of communication, but also as as weapons, and that uh, both Nietzsche and Rand in their rhetorical style are they're warriors, right? They uh, they see the world in terms of uh, you know, dramatic conflict that is not just individuals contending, but uh, ideas and belief systems 
almost come to be characters right in their own right. And uh, they take philosophy and ideas and psychologies very personally. Uh, and so they, they, uh, you know, they, they fall in love with ideas and those who, who represent the ideas that they admire. But they, they do hate and attack bitterly, uh, uh, using the strongest rhetorical terms possible, those ideas and people they see as their enemies, as uh, if, if, uh, people engage in any sort of hypocrisy, small-mindedness, or anything that's ultimately going to be destructive of human potential. So, yes, indeed. So, so I guess one of the questions that I have for you that I've wondered for a while, um, have you yourself been influenced by any uh, of, uh, libertarian uh, philosophers or Austrian school economics in any way? Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, when I was in university, I was reading Rand, and Rand pointed me toward Ludwig von Mises. So my, uh, my, my, my university years was a lot of reading of uh, Ludwig von Mises, and he is mostly an economist, but he also has uh, some strong views on history and, and political theory and uh, philosophy as well. And Mises went on to a number of other uh, Austrian school thinkers. At the same time, I did take some economics courses in universities and was learning standard neoclassical stuff as well. Um, and then through Rand, I uh, went and read uh, Milton Friedman and some of the other uh, big names in libertarian thinking in the 20th century. So I would say I've read uh, pretty much all of them, some more than others. Uh, my interests are not so much in libertarian practical full, uh, you know, uh, political strategizing or movement. And I'm not, uh, even though I've written a significant amount on politics, uh, you know, primarily interested in politics. Most of my work has been in, uh, in philosophy and intellectual history. So, uh, so to answer your question directly, yes, I've read a lot of the libertarians and learned a, a lot from them. And I'm sympathetic to a lot of the Austrian theses uh, in in economics, um, but that's not my primary of, uh, of academic specialty. How do you feel about uh, Robert Nozick? Robert Nozick? Yes. Uh, yes. Well, I like Nozick a lot. Uh, brilliant guy, and um, <clears throat> I've used some of his pieces. In some of the courses that I that I teach in uh, business and economic ethics and, and, and introduction to philosophy, um, I can't say that I'm enough of a scholar of Nozick to say uh, I've read uh, much of his works, and he strikes me as one of these guys who was brilliant and kind of plunged into a set of issues that he would be interested in, and always had very interesting, uh, fresh angles, right to say. So someone who's well worth reading right, to this day as, uh, as part of one's philosophical education. I, I agree. And, and I did, uh, as part of my undergrad, I, I did, I was exposed to the Nozick. And I, and I have on my own uh, read quite a bit of his yes. work. Yes, yes, good. Um, I think uh, one of the things that I think David's probably really interested in, I know I am, uh, you, your book explaining postmodernism, what, what sort of prompted you to to write that book, and and what is um, and maybe in sort of your the same sort of fashion you gave your, your uh, thesis or hypothesis on um, uh, Nietzsche uh, and the and the Nazis. What, can you give us something on on explaining postmodernism? Well, sure. Yes, uh, postmodernism is uh, you know, a very vigorous uh, intellectual and cultural movement of of our generation, and the, uh, the foundations for it were laid in uh, the, the the middle third and uh, of, of the 20th century, and kind of came to prominence in the the final third of the 20th century. And philosophically, right, postmodernism is a is a rejection of all of the major theses of Modernism. So, if we say the modern world is primarily characterized by you know, an admiration for science and technology, uh, a, a strong respect for individuals and their freedoms and their rights, and a sense that if we have essentially a liberal 
political system, some sort of democratic republicanism and some sort of liberal market-friendly society that we can solve all of humanity's prog- problems and, uh, and, and, uh, and have a sunny, bright-lit lit future. Postmodernism is a, a deeply uh, cynical, skeptical, and jaded right, view about all of those theses. Uh, typically, it, it's, it's an argument that we don't really know, uh, that there are no objective truths or, or, or objective and universal values that are possible, that any sense that uh, human society can be progressive and that there are universal rights that we can all learn to respect and that when people make different choices in their lifestyles that we can have essentially a tolerant society that science and technology are making all of our lives better. Instead, it's a, it's a pessimistic and ultimately uh, nihilistic conflict-driven right, uh, uh, view of the world. Now, that's a, a crude thumbnail sketch of it at a very high level. There are any number of uh, less extreme versions of postmodernism that are possible. People are often liking some elements of postmodernism, right, but not others. And, of course, the postmoderns uh, disagree amongst each other about any number of important things. But uh, what prompted me to write that book was my realization after I finished graduate school that when one surveyed the humanities and social sciences more broadly, uh, as is necessary in graduate school work, getting a master's degree and a, and, a, and, a, and a Ph.D. degree, one has to specialize fairly significantly. And in my case, it was in some, some narrower issues in philosophy. But when I started looking around, I realized that postmodernism right, was, a, was a thing in the uh, 1990s. And that there were a lot of uh, important thinkers whose works were being in, uh, very influential in anthropology, literary criticism, philosophy of history, and so on, Michel Foucault, Jean-Francois Lyotard, Jacques Derrida, and others, um, and uh, uh, that there was a lot of confusion, right, about what their views amounted to, uh, what the implications of this school was, where it had come from, and I uh, had the sense that with my background in intellectual history and the history of philosophy, that I could uh, understand the arguments that they were making and put the, to put the package together. And of course, the other thing was that all of it was highly politicized. Uh, some versions of postmodernism just try to focus on the, the narrow issues in knowledge and, 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 uh, and value theory. Is objectivity possible? Is, is universality possible? And so on, and reaching more skeptical, uh, modest, relativistic claims there. But uh, most of the applications of postmodernism and most of its leading practitioners are also highly politicized. And I noticed that the politics was all running in one direction. So when I started to read uh, more into that, I realized that there was also a political strategy that was working with the, uh, the, uh, the epistemological and value theory strategies. And so my argument is that you have to understand postmodernism as an integrated movement uh, that does have a certain view on epistemology in nature, ethics, and politics, uh, and that there are a large number of issues right, uh, that one has to deal with in all those areas, but if you put a certain set of answers together uh, and, and show how they're integrated, that's what postmodernism is. Now, the thesis, uh, as I wrote it up, was I wrote it up in the late 1990s, and the book was published in the early 2000s, so we're now getting on to uh, uh, about almost 20 years from when I was first started writing the book, so we're into another generation. Some of the manifestations of postmodernism are, are very interesting in their own right, as the high theory has become institutionalized and practiced in different ways in different uh, cultural institutions. So there are some, uh, some, some direct contemporary relevancies that come out of that as well. David, do you have any questions uh, for Dr. Hicks on this topic? Um, not really. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, it could be another whole can of worms that we open up right there. <laughs> yeah, one thing we might we might say just in connection to uh, to Nietzsche though is that all of the leading postmodernists uh, are, are are read in Nietzsche, 
And so they do like to cite his perspectivalism in epistemology, right? his emphasis on power, on uh, conflict and exploitation as being fundamental. Uh, so all of those themes do get picked up by the postmodernists. And one thing I do like to, to mention once in a while is, uh, uh, when it comes up is Michel Foucault's probably... The, 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 the postmodernist who's going to have the most staying power at one point described himself simply as a Nietzschean. That uh, he said, you know, basically I, I read Nietzsche and I try to apply a Nietzschean framework to uh, what I take to be the, the issues of our day. So there are connections also between Nietzsche, who died in 1900, and the postmodernists and their followers who are. Uh, ascendant now in some quarters on American campuses now. You, you know, it's funny uh, when you're mentioning uh, influences or connections. One of the connections that I found uh, during some of my research, again, in, in my undergrad days, um, was that there were some, uh, seemed to have been some instances where uh, Nietzsche had, had actually uh, been influenced, at least to a certain degree, by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Some of his transcendentalist mm. writing. Uh, were you aware of any of that, or have you seen or yeah, read I, about I, any of that? Uh, I'm not a scholar enough of Ralph Waldo Emerson. I would say I just have you know your basic undergraduate's understanding right of his work. Uh, but I do know that Nietzsche, as you suggested, did uh, read Emerson, and yeah, I think there are some Emersonian themes that you can find in them find in him. Which I always just thought was interesting. So sometimes you find the crossover between some of these gentlemen in, in some of the, some of the strangest places, you know. Yes, uh, it's, uh, and it is it is interesting, yeah, because uh, particularly in Nietzsche's case, he does not seem to have been especially aware of what was going on across the ocean. I think he did have a uh, well. Of course, at that point, the United States was a relatively new country. It wasn't an economic, political, or cultural powerhouse that it. Uh, that it became in the 20th century. But at the same time, I think Nietzsche did have a kind of European uh, uh, kind of cultural elite disdain for uh, what was going on in the, in the, in the colonies, so to speak. Right. Okay. Well, well um, you know, uh, I, as I said, you know, I, I was, I think that your, your work, uh, in particular, in your lecture, uh, the uh, Nietzsche and the Nazis. I, I think it was, it's been um, and is. It's, it's, I, I, it's absolutely fantastic. And well, I, 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 yeah, I appreciate that phrase. Praise, praise. Right? <laughs> well, it is. And I, 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 were you shocked that it, it was? It, it's been on. You know, it was on Netflix and, and available to people in that fashion. Or, I mean, when it happened, or was, is that something you planned on, or how that come about? Yeah, uh, that initial documentary was uh, uh, a project that I did uh, as part of a team of five people, um, and my job really was to write the script and do the narration, but there was a team of people who looked after the technical, the filming, the editing, the post-production, and so on, and then also the the business end of things. So I cannot take any credit for the Netflix connection. It was... Uh, I believe Virginia Murr, who was on the project with us at the time, Chris Vaughn, uh, John Barrett, and John Parsons were also on the project right at the time. And, but I believe it was Virginia Murr who uh, you know, just did her homework and uh, got the, uh, the, the resulting documentary, uh, an agent out in Los Angeles, and the agent then was successful at placing it with Netflix. So... I can't really take any credit for it, uh, but I'm happy that it happened, and uh, yeah, it led to an enormous number of views, and then on the basis of that, we took the, the script from the documentary and worked it up into uh, a proper book that was published some years later under the, the same title, Nietzsche and the Nazis. Well, I'm, I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> well... Uh, Prees uh, that eventually brought us together in this fashion. Yeah, yeah, it certainly did. And you know, I, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the show, uh, David. I'm, I'm sure that you were very pleased to have uh, Dr. Hicks on yep. as well. 
Well, and, my pleasure uh, too. Yeah, it, it's been it's it's a it's it's been a huge honor. And once again, I mean, if you might highlight again real quick some of the things that you're that you have going on, things that we might look out for. Well, yes, as I mentioned, I've got uh, a book I'm working on with uh, Andrew Colgan in Philosophy of Education. Uh, right now, education <clears throat> is uh, in flux. We have an enormous number of experiments that are going on within public education, but then also outside of public education with uh, various alternative systems like Montessori and Waldorf and others. And, uh, uh, technology is, uh, is transforming how we can deliver education. So uh, there's a lot of experimenting going on, a lot of argument going on, and a lot of it is very philosophical. And so uh, our hope is that with our book, we'll give people some guidance to what the philosophical issues are and what the strategic issues are that people who are interested in education, entrepreneurs, teachers, administrators uh, need to think about uh, so that they can coherently and then hopefully better educate uh, people uh, for generations to come. I'm also working on a more uh, uh, philosophical work in political philosophy uh, about liberalism, because uh, when push comes to shove, I, I describe myself as a, a liberal all the way down. Uh, and of course, those are fighting words, and you have to be careful what you mean by liberal. <laughs> But uh, uh, one of the things that, of course, everybody notices is that when we start to have arguments in politics, politics rather, people tend to you know, trot out their arguments, but they don't really listen to the other side's arguments uh, and vice versa. And so often people talk past each other. So what I do is uh, what I'm doing is uh, in the first two thirds of the book is laying out what I take to be. 15 arguments that are the best arguments that can be made for a free society. And then in the second third of the book, taking uh, the other side and laying out what I take to be the 15 strongest arguments against right, a liberal society. And taking that project seriously so that people, whatever their initial preconceptions are, can see there are really good arguments for liberalism and really good arguments against liberalism made by smart people uh, who are very deep. And if we're going to make any progress uh, socially or if anybody as an individual is going to make progress in thinking through these issues, you really have to know all of the best arguments on both sides of, of the debate. And then my value added uh, at that point is going to say, if you tried then to compare these set of 15 arguments for and against where are the most important disagreements between the two sides? Uh, when you stack them up against each other, my next claim is that a lot of the issues that we disagree about are not actually about politics, that uh, instead there are underlying philosophical commitments that people have made about values, about religion, about knowledge, about human nature. That's to say the territory of philosophy and so the reason why we're not often successful in changing people's minds is that we shouldn't be talking about politics. We have to get to the philosophical assumptions that, uh, that we both have made in arguing about them. And that's where I spend my, my, uh, my, my, my attention. So it's the, the philosophical infrastructure right, of our political debates is what I'm working on. Okay, and I... I'm kind of thinking when you say liberal, you, you mean classical liberal in many respects? Well, yeah, unfortunately, we do uh, need to, to use uh, liberal in that sense, right? Just because there is uh, liberal is often used, particularly in the American context, right, to mean someone who's liberal on some issues, but not liberal on various other issues. You know, someone who's fine right. with redistributing other people's wealth, right, but will be liberal on social issues, right, and, and so on. Basically, by liberal, I mean what everybody in the world except Americans means by liberal, right? <laughs> uh, that's a bit of a cheap shot against Americans, but Americans deserve it for letting that term drift into sometimes meaninglessness. Well, I, I, would, I would be uh, lying if I didn't say there isn't times when I'm not somewhat uh, upset about how that term has come to be misused within sure, the United States. Sure, yes, yeah. But of course, uh, almost every term that's uh, philosophically charged or politically charged is used variously. 
so I think the the best thing for any uh, intellectual to do or any thinker thinking person to do is just to think through issues clearly for oneself, uh, decide how one best thinks terms should be used, and then in one's writing and other communication, just make clear how you're using the words, and then other people who are smart and intelligent can can understand what you mean. Very, very good, very thoughtful. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. All right, well, a pleasure talking, guys. All the best for your program, and, yeah, please let me know when it's posted, and I'll share it at my end. Okay, and hopefully we will be able to have you back on again sometime. Great, looking forward to it. All right, thank you very much. Bye. Bye for now. David? And David? All right, but well, another good show, and uh, we will talk again. We'll have another episode coming up, people, here pretty soon. All right, thanks, David.